One of the great blessings of being the pastor of this church or one of the pastors of this church is getting to hear the elders pray, and I love opportunities like that where you get to hear it as well. Will you take out your copy of God's Word and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 4? On Sunday evenings when Pastor Walton's away, I've, I've been preaching for a couple of years actually through the life of David. And it's been a little while, so I want to recap everything that's been going on uh, in David's life. As we pick up, David is finally on the precipice. He, he's at the, at the verge of becoming king. He, he's waited patiently for this moment for quite a while. In fact, it's probably been about a quarter century since Samuel showed up at Jesse's house to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be the king, and it ended up being, in God's providence, David back in the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel. And so David was going to be the future king who would succeed Saul, who had forfeited his kingship by disobedience. So for at least 25 years, David has been patiently waiting. And even though Saul has now died, when we pick up in this text, the waiting continues. And so we saw last time David has been installed as the king in Hebron, but Saul's son Ishbosheth has been set up as a rival puppet king over the rest of Israel. And if you remember, Ishbosheth's a weak character, and the real power behind the scenes was his great uncle Abner. And a long war ensued, and now Abner is dead. Ishbosheth's kingdom is crumbling, but David is still not done having to wait. So let's turn our attention to God's word now, 2 Samuel chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Baana and the other Rechab, the sons of Remon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab and Baanah, set out about the heat of the day and came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. They came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baanah's brother escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baanah his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. 
which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Not an easy passage, is it? Let's go to the Lord and help, uh, ask for his help. Spirit, we pray that you would come and illumine the word to our hearts, make it make sense, not only to our minds, but give us application to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an experience that most of us are probably familiar with if, you, if we've been through the high school time, and that is you're sitting in ninth grade math, maybe it's trigonometry, and you're listening to the teacher go on and on, and you're thinking, when am I ever going to need this stuff? And sometimes you're right. But in a number of cases, probably more often than not, I have found myself surprised how often I needed the truths, the lessons that I once thought would never matter. Well, I think for many of us, we read through a passage like 2 Samuel 4, and maybe we're reading through it to get through our Bible reading plan for the day, and we come to the end of it and we think, why in the world does that matter to me? What, when is this ever going to matter that these events from 3,000 years ago involving intrigue and murder in a foreign kingdom, at least a kingdom that is far from us, when is it ever going to matter? I, when am I ever going to need this stuff? And it feels a little bit like ninth grade trigonometry. Now, we're, most of us are way too sanctified to say I'm never going to need this stuff. But we come to a passage like this, and we tend to gloss over it. It's just so, so easy to do, to read it as if it's just a remote ancient story with no real connection to my life. But we'd be wrong. If we rightly study the Word of God, there is always, even in these remote, seemingly archaic stories, there is always so much for us to learn that is so relevant to our lives. Some of you are familiar with a great Old Testament commentator named Alec Mateer. He went to be with the Lord about seven years ago, but he had a, a quote that's really vital for us to, uh, to understand and to remind ourselves often. Speaking of these kind of these stories in the Old Testament especially that just seem hard to make a connection with our lives. Matir says, the Old Testament is the Word of God. It exists not to record for our amusement the quaint notions of ancient man, but for our learning imperishable principles of divine truth. Matir's right. Even as remote as this story sounds, as irrelevant as it seems, it is delivering to us in story form timeless, timeless, imperishable principles of divine truth. When we read it that way, I think there are two wonderfully important truths in this story that really affect, or at least ought to affect, the way we live today, even 3,000 years ago in a very different context. And we can sum it up like this. This is really the lesson 
uh, or the two lessons of this chapter. It is always so easy to trust in idols to expedite what we want, but it is always better to wait upon the Lord in faithful obedience to his word. That's really what this chapter teaches us. It's easy to trust in idols. It's better to trust in the Lord. And David really is going to be our evidence of that, that it is better to trust in the Lord. As I mentioned, he's been waiting for decades to see God's kingdom promises fulfilled. Now seems to be the time. Abner's dead. Ishbosheth is weak. His kingdom is crumbling. It's hanging by a thread. Surely David can just march right in and take Ishbosheth by force. But David knew that would probably divide the kingdom. And more importantly, it would not be an expression of the godly kind of rule that David was supposed to bring in contrast to his predecessor Saul. His only option was to continue to wait to pray and trust God, and God greatly provided for David. The first thing I want you to see tonight, it is so easy for us to trust in idols, isn't it? And let me define an idol, because if you're thinking of a kind of a statuette that people keep in their home, I'm guessing that's not the struggle for most of us. When I speak of idols, I'm speaking of those things that we are, we're tempted to place our trust in rather than God. Those things that, that we feel like everything's okay as long as I have them. Those things that we look to for security and identity and hope in this world. Almost anything can be an idol to us. It can be power. It can be possessions. It can be position. It can be people. John Calvin was right when he said, Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. It's open 24-7. The assembly line is always running. We're always looking to other things when we should be trusting in the Lord. We see idolatry in many forms in this passage. The first is, is in Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, as a reminder, is the son of Saul. If you're familiar with the kingdom of Israel, you know Saul was the first king, but he gave up the kingdom because he refused to obey God's word. And so Ishbosheth is not a rightful heir to the kingdom. He's a usurper. David is the rightful heir. What this means for Ishbosheth is he can't trust God to help him ascend the throne. If he's trusting God, then he has to acknowledge that it is not God's will for him to ascend the throne. And so what he does instead, rather than saying, you know, if this is not the Lord's will, I won't do it, he puts his trust in Abner. Abner was his great uncle. Abner's the, the one pulling the strings behind the scenes, and so he's been the one casting Ishbosheth into power and rallying Israel to mount up behind him. But now Abner's dead. We saw that last time, and Ishbosheth is distraught. Verse 1 shows us that Ishbosheth's courage failed. Uh, literally, the Hebrews said his hands dropped, and you can get that image in your mind. He just throws in the towel. He gives up. The one, gives up. The one he trusted in was gone. You know that feeling, don't you? When you have put your hope and your trust into someone or something, and it has failed you. You know, that happens actually every time we put our trust in anyone or anything other than Yahweh. When our hope when our, our future hinges not 
on the God of the universe, but upon the creation. It always disappoints us. It cannot. It's not designed to bear the weight of our hopes. It's not designed to bear the weight of our trust, and it will eventually come crumbling down. And so Ishbosheth, everything that Ishbosheth's been trusting in, people and power and positions and possessions, it's all coming crumbling down. And he's left with nothing as the story picks up. No protection. Uh, even his own followers are, are turning on him. And that, that introduces us to these two characters, Ba'ana and Rahab. They're Berethites. We don't know much about the Berethites, but we know that these two men were captains in, in the army under Ishbosheth. Specifically, they're captains of raiding bands, and so their job is to, to go and, and, and take over surrounding areas. They're really there to expand the territory of Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth has put a lot of trust in these men, and they've been faithful, it seems, thus far at least. But now Abner is dead. They're looking at Ishbosheth. All they see is a weak man who doesn't have the, the oomph to really rise to the top. And they say, you know, it's time we, we unhitch our shell, ourselves from Ishbosheth. He's a, a sinking ship. In other words, we're in dire straits. So what do we do? And if you, if you watch them, and the text, it, it says a lot with what it doesn't say. We never see them seeking the Lord in prayer. We never see them consulting the scriptures. Prayer and seeking the Lord aren't even on their minds. And when trust in the Lord is absent, scheming and manipulation and sin are abundant. And so they decide to do something that will hopefully endear them to the legitimate king, the rightful king, David. They pretend, I, I, the text isn't totally clear on this, but I think the author is trying to indicate to us that this was all a scheme. They didn't just show up at the house and say, ah, he's asleep on his bed, let's kill him. I think this was all a scheme. They go to his house, they're pretending to get wheat, and while he's asleep on the bed, they go and stab him in the stomach. Now, if you, I don't know if you noticed it, but the text repeats the story twice. It says that they, they went in, and they stabbed him in the stomach and killed him, and then you come to verse 7, and it tells the story again. I think what the author's doing there is just subtly saying, these guys are not very macho. These are real cowards. He's asleep on his bed, and they sneak in, and they stab him in the stomach it's presenting them as, as cowardly opportunists here. The, the text is really sort of, of mocking him. These guys, mocking them. These guys are so macho, they kill the weak king in his sleep. Really, the weak wannabe king in his sleep. Now, we're going to see David's assessment of what they've done later, but the author is telling us these are cowards, and these are the sort of people that Ishbosheth has put his trust in. They're not courageous men, but cowardly mercenaries, and they're certainly not loyal, and so just as idols always do, they abandon us in our moment of greatest need, and they kill Ishbosheth. Now, Ishbosheth's death teaches us a lot. With Abner's help, with the help of his army, he was able in previous times, to manipulate the situation for his own gain. But eventually, and this text reminds us, judgment for the wicked always catches up with them, doesn't it? Judgment for the wicked always catches up with them. And, and so we can look to idols, we can look to our own skills, we can look to other people to try to outsmart justice for our sins. 
like Ishbosheth's doing, but it always, always catches up with us. He mocked and defied the living God by raising himself to the crown he knew belonged to David, and he refused to repent. And justice caught up with him. His end reminds us idols may help us prosper in this life, but they can never help us escape God's judgment, can they? Power positions people all abandoned Ishbosheth, and his life came to a tragic end, reminding us that the wages of sin is always death, and no idol can ever preserve us from that. We'll come back to that towards the end. So Ishbosheth dies, his idols have crumbled, and he's left with nothing. Well, the Lord knows we're slow learners, and so this lesson is repeated for us again in this chapter. Rahab, uh, Rahab, however you say it, and Ba'anah have killed Ishbosheth. Verse 7 tells us they cut off his head. They're going to take it to David to show him in hopes that he will recognize these guys are heroes. Let me give them a place in my cabinet. Let me give them a place in, in my kingdom. And so they start the journey to Hebron. It's kind of a funny statement. They start down the Arabah Road. It's about an 80-mile journey carrying Ishbosheth's head. I'm not sure of the best way to transport a, a decapitated head, but they transport it 80 miles. Now, we've already learned in our study of David's life that David does not rejoice when people raise up their hands against another in murder. We saw that when Saul was killed, and, and one of the servants came boasting to David that he had done it and seeking to, to endear David to him. These men travel 80 miles with head in hand, hoping David will reward them. What's the idol that they're trusting in? Well, I think it's really their own ingenuity, their own capacity to come up with a way of life to live and move and have our being and to prosper apart from the word of God. God's word forbids murder. This is sin. There's no way around it. It is sin. And they think they can prosper apart from obedience to the scriptures, but God's word teaches repeatedly prosperity is a fruit of obedience. These guys are seeking another prosperity. It's, it's one apart from the word of God, and so they've, they've paid no attention to the command, you shall not murder. You know what idolatry always does? Idolatry always causes the word of God to give way to the stubborn will of man. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They're saying, I know a way for me to live that is better than what God has prescribed for me. I know a route to prosperity that is better than what the Word of God teaches. In fact, they're so clever, they've even figured out how to use piety as a cloak for evil. Look at verse 8. They say to David, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now, on the one hand, they're right. God has accomplished his plan using even wicked men to do it. But were these men the messengers of the Lord's vengeance? Were they the, the, the tools of God's 
vengeance. Is that what their heart was? And we're going to talk about how God at times will use the civil magistrate for that. But these were not men in that position. They were self-seeking opportunists. And Ishbosheth was to them just a step, a, a stepping stone to power and pride and position for themselves. And they sound so pious, don't they? David, the Lord has avenged you. It's a great offense to use theology as a covering for sin, isn't it? The, the Pharisees did that. They murdered Jesus under the guise of, of religion. That's what these two brothers are doing. As one commentator said, murder always seems more pleasant when it's wrapped in religious considerations. Do you ever do that? No, I don't think you've ever murdered anybody under the guise of religion, but how about gossiping about someone under the guise of prayer request? Have you ever used piety as a veneer to cover sin? Um, have you ever fudged on your taxes but said, you know, it's, it's for the good of the kingdom because then I can tithe a little bit more? It's amazing how our minds will allow us to use our theology for wicked gain. Sin wrapped in religious garb is still sin. In these cases, our, our theology and the wonderful truths of the gospel become not an impetus for worship, but just another idol on the quest for self. And idolatry is contagious. It's spread to all the people. Look back at verse 1. The whole people, speaking of Israel, the whole people are dismayed. The whole country's let down because they place their trust in Ishbosheth and in his, his party. And now he's let them down. Should Israel have known better than to put their trust in a man like Ishbosheth? Certainly they should have. They've seen God rescue them time and time and time again. But it reminds us it is so easy to place our trust in idols rather than the unseen God. How often are we guilty of that? You look, we can understand the position Israel's in because we look at, at the news sometimes and we look at those who are in office and our, our whole outlook, our hope for the future depends on who's in the Oval Office or who's the governor. We're so apt to put our trust in men that, and what our eyes can see and our understanding of how things are going and when it doesn't go our way, we can despair. Now, it is good to vote. It is good to be a good citizen, to advocate for what is good. But as we sang just a few moments ago, we must put no confidence in princes nor on man for help depend. He is dust to dust returning. Idols sap our joy. When our well-being, like Israel, when our well-being is based on something that can rise and fall so easily. It saps our joy. Jonah, the prophet Jonah, knew a thing about idols, didn't he? He followed his own ingenuity rather than obedience to what God had commanded from him. Listen to Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish in Jonah 2, verse 8. He says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope, of steadfast love. 
Brothers and sisters, idols are so easy to put our trust in. Every day, you are tempted with it. But you cannot, Jonah's saying this, Israel's proving this, you cannot simultaneously cling to idols and experience the surpassing joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Idols sap your joy. The Christian, instead of looking at who's in office or the economy and those things and despairing on bad days and rejoicing in good days, the Christian can say with Habakkuk, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, though there be no fruit on the vine, though the olive fails, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. We, we see that again and again in Scripture. When the vast armies coming over the horizon at Jehoshaphat as the leader in his day is confronted with an overwhelming prospect that seems to be going to destroy him, he says to the people, Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We saw it in our call to worship, Psalm 115. The nations would mock Israel because the nations had their gods. They had gods that they could take with them as good luck charms. By the way, we're going to see that soon in Second Samuel, but had gods that they could carry with them and manipulate. And then they would look at Israel and go, where is your God? And Israel said, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It's so easy to trust in the things we can see and touch and manipulate. But it is so much better to trust the Lord. By God's grace, at least in this episode, David shows us how good it is to trust the Lord. He's not always going to teach us that lesson, by the way. But in this account, David is the foil. He's the opposite of everyone else. He refuses to trust in idols, makes clear his trust is not in men. He was a great warrior. He certainly could have taken Ishbosheth with no problem, but he knows that he's got to sit back and trust God. Look again at, at these two brothers, Ramah and Ba'anah. They come in carrying Ishbosheth's head, and they say to the king, David, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. You know, they're not claiming they are God, but they're claiming that they are God's messengers, and they're claiming really that they are David's redeemer. They're David's rescuer. They're the ones that have secured David's kingdom in hopes that he would be indebted to them. David, you should be so grateful for us, and they're looking around to figure out which seat at the table they're going to occupy. David doesn't take the bait. Verse 9, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. What's he saying there? You're not my redeemer. You're not my rescuer. You're not my savior. That's the Lord's job, and God does not need your wicked, underhanded ways to rescue me or to fulfill his plans. He doesn't need you cowards to go take a cheap shot at my enemies. He will take care of it. Now, David does something interesting here that at first glance may seem hypocritical. He says to these men, you've murdered Saul's son, your fellow Benjaminite, Ishbosheth. therefore what? I'm going to kill you. 
you can obviously see how that appears to be hypocritical. But look again at verse 9. He says, as the Lord lives. It's weighty language. He's not just using pious talk. He's really convening the royal court for judgment. He's the king, and as the king, he's the chief civil magistrate and the formal executor of God's justice on earth. This was the duty God was entrusting to him. But it wasn't up to David to decide about crime and punishment. He was not the lawmaker. God was the lawmaker. David simply had to carry out the duty. Well, what was God's law about those who take life? Genesis 9 verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In other words, God's saying, so precious is the life of any man created in my image that the only way to vindicate those who would take life, the only way to acknowledge the sacredness of life is for that life to be taken. Now, you might think, that sounds very Old Testament. Look with me at Romans 13 for a moment. Romans 13, starting in verse 3, this is speaking of the civil magistrate. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so just to to zoom out a little bit, God has said the only way to rightly avenge the death, uh, death by murder is to take the life of the evildoer, to take the life of the murderer. Ishbosheth's slaying fits that crime. In fact, David calls Ishbosheth a righteous man. He's not saying he was a good man. He wasn't a good man. He's saying Ishbosheth did not deserve to be murdered. You did not have the, 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 the means. You did not have the right to take his life. And the clear punishment under God's law for these men taking Ishbosheth's life was for them to lose their own life. And so David here is not being hypocritical. He's not taking delight in their death. He's actually just carrying out God's wrath as the civil magistrate has been charged to do. In so doing, he actually proved himself to be a man after God's own heart. He was willing to obey God's law, even when it was perhaps not what he himself wanted to do. That's not popular today. Certainly our culture has changed its view of this issue. But remember this. Saul lost his throne for precisely the same thing. He was called to wipe out a whole tribe, and he wouldn't do it. And, and so Saul lost his throne for withholding the sword upon those for whom God had commanded death. Like David, we honor and serve God when we submit to his commands rather than replace his commands with man's opinion. Now, consider the position David is in. 
I've wondered, how would I have responded if they show up at my house with the head of my enemy? Now, after 25 years, I can finally take the throne that I've been waiting for. Would you have grieved? Would you have sought justice like David did? We need to realize that if David had rejoiced in this wickedness, it would have been practical idolatry. He, he would have been guilty of what everybody else has been guilty of. God had promised to make David king, and there was no reason David needed to entrust himself to these two sinful men. He knew something they didn't. It's something you and I easily forget as well. And that is that no matter how things may appear, and no matter how much more expedient it may seem to take shortcuts from God's word, it is always better to trust the Lord. Disobedience is really just distrust. I don't think God's word is, is trustworthy. That's what I'm doing when I'm, I'm disobedient. Unlike Ishbosheth, David had a promise that he would one day be king. He had no reason to expedite that or take matters into his own hands. Undoubtedly, that confidence undergirded him, enabling him to walk by faith even when his eyes could see no end. It's true for us as well. In our dire straits, in the uncertainties of life, we do well to cling to the promises of God rather than taking matters into our own hands. Everything else in the world will fail us. The promises of God never will. First Kings 8, Solomon has this wonderful prayer. He says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised not one word has failed of all his good promise. Now that was hmm, 3,000 years ago, and I can tell you for sure God's track record is still the same. Not one promise has failed. We see that all over the text. Despite all that's going on, God is working to bring his purposes to their appointed end. Ishbosheth's kingdom is crumbling. He and his followers show how powerless they are when God is opposed to them. But David has Yahweh at his right hand. He's hidden in the shadow of the Almighty. He has no need to worry. There's a strange side note. I wonder if you noticed it. I hope you read in such a way that you, you ask good questions while you're reading the text. But the strange side note is in verse 4 where you just get the sidebar about Mephibosheth, Saul's other living son, uh, excuse me, uh, Jonathan's uh, living son. He was five years old. The news came uh, from Jezreel. His nurse took him. She tripped, fell. He became lame. That was Mephibosheth. Why is the author bringing that up right here? It's a strange place to insert this, but the Holy Spirit is so strategic in this. He's showing us God's got everything under control, David. You have no need to trust in men. You have no need to trust in idols. God will keep his promises. You don't need to take matters into your own hands. Oh, by the way, Mephibosheth would have been the rival heir to the throne. In other words, David, I've got this. You need not worry. Never trust in idols. It is always, always better to trust the Lord. David needed that reinforcement. 
Israel also needed repentance, didn't they? They trusted in one that they shouldn't have. And God brought what is sometimes called a severe mercy to them. With Ishbosheth's kingdom coming, their idols crumbled and they were hopeless. They had no choice but to place their hope in the rightful king, in King David. Sheldon Vanneken and his wife, Jean, when they got married, made an agreement that they would do everything together in life for the purpose of increasing their love for one another. So, for example, they agreed not to have children because they thought that it would potentially divide their love for one another. Jean was dramatically converted through the ministry of C.S. Lewis. And she realized that her love for her husband must never eclipse her love for Jesus Christ Sheldon wasn't converted yet, and so you can imagine what his response was. He was angry. He did all that he could to oppose God's work in her life. Well, years later, he wrote a book by those words, Severe Mercy. See, Jean realized her love had become an idol to her husband and a hindrance to his salvation. And so she prayed, asking the Lord to do whatever it took to convert Sheldon. The Lord heard her prayer, and she contracted an illness and died suddenly. Sheldon was bitter. He tried to make sense of it all, so he reached out to C.S. Lewis. Lewis pointed to the ways in which God dealt severely with wayward, idolatrous Israel, disciplining and chastising them many times, and Lewis said to Sheldon, you have been chastised or treated with a severe mercy. In God's seeking and redeeming love for Sheldon, even before Sheldon was seeking him, God afflicted Sheldon by taking away his idols. Do you see how kind and merciful the Lord is to break our idols? It hurts. It's uncomfortable when our idols of pride and power and possession and position and all those other things come crumbling down, it hurts. And yet it is a severe mercy for God to do that. In his great love for us, he strips away everything that would compete with true saving faith so that we would look to him and him only. That's what he did with Israel. As Ishbosheth's kingdom came crashing down and Israel was dismayed, all they could do was look to David. It reflects the words of David in Psalm 119. He says, It was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It is always better to trust the Lord, even when in, in a severe mercy our idols crumble to dust. So back to the original question, when am I ever going to need this stuff? Every time you're tempted to put your trust in anything or anyone other than the God of the Bible, that's when. And that's every day, isn't it? Every day, idols vie for our hearts. It's so easy to place our trust in idols, but this story shows us it is always better to trust in the Lord. Let me go straight to application here. And the application is, how do we fight our idols? How do we fight against it when it's so easy to trust in and when it's so easy to turn to those worthless things? A couple things we see here. First, we have to realize 
that the potential for idols in our heart is endless. This side of glory, there will never be a moment where you are completely free from the allurement of idols. It can be the allure of wealth and possessions. It may just be sheer pride that you have gotten so strong you're not drawn by idols anymore. Anything in this world vies for our attention It vies to be an idol in our lives, and yet it is completely unworthy for that place. Only God deserves that place, and we must be resolute not to turn our hearts to another. You remember in Joshua 24, he's just said to him, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, then in verse 23, he says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you, And incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Beloved, search your life. What idols have ground in your heart? What is it in your heart that that, that is occupied territory that belongs only to Jesus Christ? Search your heart and put away the idols that you find. Second, gratitude for God's past faithfulness gives us the antidote for idolatry. When Rechab and Baanah come to David, they claim to be his rescuer. David says, no, no, no. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. In other words, David's saying, no, no, no. God is my Savior. God is my Redeemer. I have seen that in the past. It's exactly what he did when he went to fight against Goliath. He says, God saved me in the past from from bears and lions. He'll save me now. Past gratitude for God's faithfulness slays idolatry. Do you know the story of Polycarp? He was bishop of Smyrna. He was actually a disciple of John. And in his old age, in around the year, the year 155 AD, he was arrested. And he was told, if you will simply call Caesar Lord, you may go free. Now, you can imagine this is a man who's older. That's a very attractive thing to go retire in peace, isn't it? If you will just bow the knee to Caesar, you may go free. And if he didn't bow to Caesar, he would be fed to the beasts. Listen to what he says. Eighty and six years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? It's the same thing David is saying here. God has always been faithful. Why would, I, why would I ever betray him? Why would I ever turn away from him? I cannot trust in another. Gratitude is the antidote for idolatry. Third, we need to realize God never needs sin in order to bring his purposes to pass. We see these two brothers, they sin. God uses sin sinlessly but he never needs sin. And and so we ought never believe that we need to be pragmatic in order to accomplish God's will if it goes against God's word. Listen to, to Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Paul says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice 
cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, God's work must be done God's way. We, we cannot accommodate worldly techniques, sinful techniques, towards holy ends. Finally, if David could trust God's promises, how much more can you and me? This text shows Israel looking to idols. It shows Ishbosheth looking to idols. Abner has been looking to idols. The idols never measure up, and David knew that. For you and I, we have a king who is far greater than David, one who is just towards his enemies, but also takes on to himself the judgment we deserve. I mentioned earlier the wages of sin is death. Sin always catches up with us. In Jesus Christ, we have one who took our death onto himself. David only faintly understood what you and I, even the children of this church, can clearly articulate in the gospel. If David could trust the Lord to keep his promises. How much more can you and I on this side of the cross be certain that he has no failing promises? Idols disappoint and distress and fail us. Christ never will. Idols are sinking sand. Christ is the solid rock and upon him we stand. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, it is easy, we confess. It is easy to trust in idols. It's easy to look towards other things, other people, for hope and identity and security, stability, prosperity. When you alone can really offer us those things. We thank you, Lord, for the, the testimony, the witness of David here. We thank you that we have a far greater hope than even David had. We who have seen the cross, who have understood the resurrection, who have fellowship with Jesus Christ in a way that David in his earthly life could not have really even imagined. How much more do we know that it is good to trust the Lord? We ask this in Jesus' name.